You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Put on some comfy shoes, because this is going to be a long walk. Ask the people who care too much about answering the question, what's the worst year in pop music history, and they're likely to scream, 1974. In fact, 1974 is so widely believed to be the worst year in pop music history that there is a veritable factory farm of hot takes out there devoted not to proving it is, but explaining why. Most of those theories lean heavily on the resignation of Richard Nixon, or the exhaustion of the Vietnam War, or both. I don't know, maybe, but a lot of the bad music of 1974 came from England, which didn't have Nixon or Vietnam to worry about. And a curious portion of it came from Canada, which never has anything to worry about. Oh, Canada, you sweet summer child. The other common explanation is that after the Beatles broke up in 1970, pop music just couldn't figure itself out for a while. The best evidence for this theory is how many bad songs were released in 1974 by former Beatles. There was John Lennon with Whatever Gets You Through the Night, which is just the sort of boppy pseudo-disco number everybody wanted out of him, right? Paul McCartney released Band on the Run with Wings, which, eh, well, Band on the Run is actually a pretty good song, I guess. A little disjointed, but whatever. Still, however decent Band on the Run is, it's pretty well drowned out by the other ex-Beatle of 1974, Ringo Starr. Ringo managed to hit number one with a cover of Your 16, a 1960s Sherman Brothers tune that was originally recorded by rockabilly heartthrob Johnny Burnett. For some reason, Ringo decided 14 years later to starch the shit out of that ode to pederasty and release it with a kazoo solo in the middle. And such was the state of pop music in 1974 that the people said, yes, more of that old man kazooing about teenagers, please. This isn't to say that there wasn't any good music in 1974. Billy Preston's Nothing From Nothing, Solid Bop, any day of the week. Elton John, who also played on that John Lennon tune, released his second number one single, Benny and the Jets, which absolutely kicks, no question. Jim Croce, Time in a Bottle, great song. I get pensive just thinking about it. Same with Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle, gets me right in the feels. And Roberta Flack's Feel Like Making Love is one of the sexiest songs ever written no holds barred. But these are all exceptions that prove the rule. The worst songs of 1974 are truly shudderworthy. 
This is the year that Sister Janet Mead, an Australian nun, scored a hit with a rock and roll reading of the Lord's Prayer. Tom T. Hall, who wrote brilliant country-western story songs like The Year That Clayton Delaney Died and That's How I Got to Memphis, disappointed with the laziest possible entry, I Love, in which he barely sings a long list of random nouns and verbs he enjoys. Or let's just take a look at the most popular songs of 1974, according to the Billboard charts. Four songs managed to tie for that honor, each of which lasted three weeks at number one. One is Barbra Streisand's The Way We Were, which I'm not here to talk smack about. It's a good tune and Babs is great. Please don't at me. But the other three, ugh. There's Paul Anka's insipid Having My Baby, which feels like something you'd put on a loop to drive mice out of your house. Then you've got Ray Stevens with a novelty comedy song about a streaker that America managed to find entertaining for almost a month, which deeply challenges my faith in humanity. Finally, we land on Canadian Terry Jacks. In 1962, the Belgian singer, songwriter, actor, and director Jacques Brel wrote Le Morabonde, a beautiful, deep, complex song about a dying man's last recollections to the people in his life, in which he asks his wife's lover to take care of her in his absence. Jax turned Le Morabund into an off-time, cavity-causing sugar smack called Seasons in the Sun. Seasons in the Sun is a very bad song, in large part because of how its jingle-jangle featheriness totally undercuts the melancholy at its roots. You know what? That's actually maybe the most conspicuous recurring issue with the music of 1974. There are all these songs that, lyrically, refer to death and war and pain and suffering, which are played as bubblegum, oompa, oompa, pop and sparkle pablum. Like Billy Don't Be a Hero by Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods, which stayed at number one for two weeks. The lyrics tell the story of a woman pleading with her fiancé, who is going off to fight in the Civil War, not to die there. He does, of course, and when she gets the letter telling him he died a hero, she crumples it up and throws it away. If you just read the lyrics, it's a deeply cynical and discomforting story about a man choosing sacrifice to his country over his personal feelings and about a woman who sees that sacrifice not as heroism, but as betrayal. If you listen to it, on the other hand, that is some dissonance right there. If Bo Donaldson and the Haywoods were doing it on purpose, it might be brilliant. But that is not how things were in 1974. Also, it's not their song anyway. It's a cover of an equally terrible recording done by Paper Lace, one of the dozens of failed British attempts to seize the Beatles' crown. Paper Lace released Billy Don't Be a Hero in the UK in 1974, but got beaten to the American punch by Bo Donaldson, which has got a smart. Fortunately for Paper Lace, they had another song for American listeners, and it is, in my opinion, the worst song of the worst year in pop music history. 
the night Chicago died. God, where to start with the night Chicago died? There's the screeching Moog synthesizer glisses at the top. The barely rhythmic patter in the intro. generally uninspired instrumentation, then you have the lyrics, which read like a bad translation off the box of a Japanese novelty cowboy hat. The land of the dollar bill? Another terrible feature of The Night Chicago Died is the same one it shares with Billy Don't Be a Hero and Seasons in the Sun. In theory, this song is about a deadly gunfight between Al Capone and the Chicago police on the east side of Chicago in which a hundred cops and every gangster were killed. Yet in practice, it is about the cheeriest murder ballad imaginable. Yes, indeed. And hey, I would have my Chicago citizenship revoked if I didn't correct a slight mistake in the described Al Capone versus the entire CPD mass casualty event on the east side of Chicago. It never happened. It seems, and I say it seems with all the generosity my cold Cook County heart can muster, it seems like paper lace is meaning to describe the infamous St. Valentine's Day massacre, which, as the name belies, wasn't a shootout at all, but a massacre. And it didn't involve the cops. On February 14, 1929, some unknown number of assailants, almost certainly working for Capone, lined up and assassinated seven associates of Capone's rival Bugs Moran in a Lincoln Park warehouse on the north side of Chicago. The north side, not the east side. This is the part of The Night Chicago Died that most sticks in the craws of the denizens of my fair city. Because if you ask any Chicagoan, they will tell you that there is no east side of Chicago. Chicago is laid out on a grid, with every street given not just a name, but also a number that indicates how far north, south, east, or west it is. So, if you're going to the corner of Fullerton and Halstead, that's 2,400 north, 800 west. Sir Mac and Cicero, 2,200 south, 4,800 west. The center of the grid is State Street and Madison Avenue, 0, 0. State and Madison is towards the middle of the loop, Chicago's main downtown epicenter. Head north of the loop, you'll find yourself on the north side. Head south, the south side. Head west, you guessed it, the west side. But head east from State and Madison, and in about five blocks, you're going to be swimming in Lake Michigan. Peter Callender, who wrote the lyrics to The Night Chicago Died, has addressed criticism of his geography by saying, there's an east side of everywhere. To which those critics retort, fine, yes, technically, but the east side of Chicago is underwater. So how could there have been a massive war there? And that is where I am obliged to step in to defend Peter Callender. Not his song. The song really, truly sucks. And Callender's history of Al Capone is total nonsense. But stifle your scoffing, Chicagoans. 
because years before Capone, the city's non-existent east side was the site of a giant battle. On one side were 600 police officers, with 16 patrol wagons and two artillery-wielding tugboats. On the other were more than a dozen men, led by an enterprising bunko artist, his dog, his wife, and a broken boat that had been beached upon a sandbar years before. At stake was a swampy swath of property which had been underwater for centuries, but which was beginning to dry out. A land that didn't entirely exist yet, but might soon. The east side of Chicago. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler, and I told you it was a long walk. Today's episode, Lick the Earth. The geographical heart of this story beats at Michigan Avenue and Chestnut Street. That is, in grid terms, 900 north and 100 east. This is the home of the John Hancock Center, which hasn't officially been called the John Hancock Center for two years. It's technically called 875 North Michigan Avenue now, but come on. It's the Hancock. It'll always be the Hancock. When it was completed in 1968, the Hancock was the second tallest building in the world, just barely behind the Empire State Building. It's a hundred-story tall black obelisk, which Church of Satan founder Anton LaVey described as a brooding spectacle with twin devil horns. LaVey claimed that the shape of the Hancock provoked emotional imbalance and acts of violence in anyone who went inside. He also claimed to have been born on the site of the tower, but he was either lying or wrong. The Hancock lies towards the northern edge of what's now called the Magnificent Mile, a long stretch of upscale shopping that draws to Chicago people from all over the world looking to drop $110 on a t-shirt. Back when LaVey was born in 1930, the Hancock was 38 years away from being built, and Arthur Rubloff was more than 10 years away from inventing the marketing jargon Magnificent Mile. But the run of Michigan Avenue, north from the Chicago River to the Gold Coast, was still a swanky place to shop, work, and stay. Go back another 44 years to 1886, and it's a different story. Not only was Mag Mile missing its trademark name and its tourists and its flagship retail outlets, it was also missing its... Well, it was just plain missing. In 1886, most of what is today Michigan Avenue and the whole 186 acres of land east of it was underwater. In the place where the Hancock now stands was a sandbar, not even tall enough to break above the waves, but just tall enough to beach a 35-ton steamship. Which is exactly what happened on July 10th, when a storm threw the SS Rutan into that sandbar, stranding it in a foot or two of water just 400 feet offshore. No, wait, I shouldn't say that's exactly what happened, because almost every single word of that sentence is disputed, denied, contradicted, or challenged. And so is nearly everything else that took place east of Michigan Avenue over the next 40 years of war, vandalism, and courtroom drama. If you're from Chicago, there's a good chance you already know where this story is going, or you think you do, anyway. Hell, when I sat down to write this episode, I thought it would be light work. 
I chose it because I figured it would be easy, that I already knew most of the broad strokes. I should have known better than to think I knew anything. So here's the 3,000-foot view on what can be said unequivocally. Sometime in 1886, the SS Rutan ended up somewhere on the shallow sandbar east of Michigan Avenue. Sometime in the next few years, that sandbar became 186 acres of new land. And for the next four decades, a battle was fought, sometimes figurative, oftentimes quite literal, over who owned this new east side of Chicago. The first set of claimants is a hodgepodge of wealthy Chicago industrialists and robber barons, some of the richest and most powerful people in America at the time. There were the Ogdens, a family of railroad magnates in Chicago's first political dynasty. There were the Palmers, who got rich doing almost anything that made money, but who are most well-known for the Palmer House Hotel. There were the Peabodies of Peabody Coal fame slash infamy. Most of all, there were the Fairbanks, whose Potterfamilius N.K. Fairbank had made a fortune by leveraging the byproducts of the Chicago stockyards into soaps and cleaning supplies. On the other side of the land dispute was the captain of the beached steamship Rutan and our ostensible protagonist, Captain George Wellington Streeter. Before we flash back to the salad days of George Wellington Streeter, allow me to emphasize just how frustratingly unreliable every last element of this story is. I'm used to evidence being sparse. I'm used to sources being contradictory. But in the 75 or however many episodes of the show I've made, I've never contended with anything like this one. It's not that there's a dearth of information. Far from it. There are easily thousands of pages out there about the Streeter War, or whatever you'd like to call it. And a whole lot of those pages are primary, contemporaneous sources, seemingly direct insights into the events and people from first-hand eyewitness reporting. Yet, barely any of it is consistent, and nearly all of it has a readily identifiable bias. There are partisans who wrote about Streeter and his antics in terms of political allegory. There are police, private detectives, court officers, and other government officials who clearly are looking out for their own interests. And then there are the reporters and the the man-on-the-street types who are blatantly fascinated or infatuated with the character of Cap Streeter, as he's frequently referred to, who are happy to tell things in a light favorable to him because his is a good story that sells newspapers or buys drinks at the bar. Like the not-yet-land of the independent district of Lake Michigan, circa 1886, there is no solid ground to begin building this story upon. I wasn't exaggerating when I said that almost every element of the Rutan's landing is disputed. It's so disputed that I don't even know how to go about explaining the dispute yet, so I'm pushing it off towards later in the episode. Instead, it seems sensible to go back and explain who Captain George Streeter was, where he came from, and what he did. But this course, too, is rife with obstacles. If you're looking for details on Streeter's life before the land war, you're stuck almost exclusively with one book, Captain Streeter Pioneer, a 1914 biography by Everett Guy Ballard. But everything about Captain Streeter Pioneer is suspicious. It was published by Emory Publishing Service, an imprint best known for printing Captain Streeter Pioneer, because it's the only thing they ever did. If the copyright is to be believed, 
Emery Publishing Service was owned by one Cecil Emery, about whom I can tell you absolutely nothing other than that he probably existed because he filled out his census in 1940, and in April of 1907, he's mentioned in the Weekly Pantograph, a newspaper out of Bloomington, Illinois. The article, in its entirety, reads as follows. Miss Helena McCleary spent Saturday and Sunday with Mr. and Mrs. Cecil Emery at Chicago. That's it. <laughs> That's the whole thing. Well, fine. Who cares about the publisher anyway? How about the author? Who's this Everett Guy Ballard? The title page of Captain Streeter Pioneer describes him as the author of Liberty, Independence, and Self-Government, a title worth taking in for later. Liberty, Independence, and Self-Government appears to have been not a book authored by Ballard, but a collection of speeches and writings from the Founding Fathers compiled by Ballard. He published it himself. Aside from that and his approximate date of birth, I can only find one thing else about Everett Guy Ballard, his obituary. It was carried in the New York Times on Saturday, September 24, 1955. He was 83, survived by his son Foster, and remembered as an attorney for George Wellington Streeter. Yet Ballard doesn't announce himself as Streeter's lawyer in the book. No, instead the first chapter of Captain Streeter Pioneer begins with the aforementioned Captain Streeter Pioneer threatening Ballard with a Springfield rifle. Ballard doesn't explicitly say what led him to the cap, but lets the reader infer that he has been sent by Illinois Governor John P. Altgeld, who he says requested the book be written. A suspicious claim, since at the time, Governor John P. Altgeld was otherwise engaged, what with him having died 12 years earlier and all. Anywho, the reason Ballard begins his tale at gunpoint is because the captain had mistaken him for one of the many lawyers, spies, or Pinkertons employed by soap magnate N.K. Fairbank to remove him from the shantytown which at that point sat around where the steamship Rutan had landed years before. As the book details it, once assured that Ballard's purpose was peaceful, Streeter lowered his gun, invited him inside, put on a pot of coffee, and began immediately reciting his life story in exquisite detail. No time to dwell on the plausibility of that sequence of events, though, because it's when Streeter's jawing begins that his biography gets especially sketchy. At this point, just ten pages in, Ballard purports to take off his writing hat. From there on, he says, he's just a transcriptionist, a stenographer, putting down the words of William Streeter as he heard them. That's the most questionable part so far. See, journalists of the time loved writing about Captain Streeter. One of the primary reasons for that love was the way he talked. And reading the language of Captain Streeter as dutifully reproduced by E.G. Ballard shows a very different character than what you get from the papers. For instance, here's Captain Streeter going off on a highfalutin tear about a prominent New York attorney's take on the Sherman Antitrust Law in the pages of Ballard's biography. Let me put on my best Streeter voice. He even has the effrontery to say that this body is not competent to attempt a change in any of its provisions. We presume he thinks himself capable of fooling with it ad libitum. The truth about the matter is that he is only aroused to this outbreak because of the known fact that Congress intends to make such changes in the law as are necessary to restore its former vitality, of which this decision of the Supreme Court robbed it, and to make its application and scope more drastic against all combinations in restraint of trade, whether reasonable or unreasonable. 
In other words, that it may be clear that all combinations in restraint of trade are absolutely and unequivocally prohibited. Compare that to this speech given in the Chicago Tribune on September 1st, 1901, and see if you can spot the difference. All we got to do now is just to walk in there and to snap our fingers under everybody's noses that tries to stop us. Got everything all planned out. Gonna build a courthouse, an opry house, and a club, and a lot of dwellings, begum. They can't stop us. I've got them all licked, so they'll never squeak again. Captain Streeter's got the whole yurt licked. That's what he has. He's the boss of the show, you bet. I've taught them lawyers and judges in the whole crowd. They're afraid of Cop Streeter. When we go in there again, there ain't nobody going to do nothing to nobody. They're licked. I lick them. I can lick the world. And I done done it. You betcha. <laughs> Cop Streeter has licked the earth. That's pretty well exactly what he sounds like in every article I've found. While it's tempting to wonder if perhaps every newspaper reporter in the city got together to build a Captain Streeter style guide, it's probably more prudent to ask why a land-squatting riverboat captain would be extolling at length and in detail about a New York lawyer's arguments before the Supreme Court. So, now that I've given you more than enough reason to disbelieve every page of Captain Streeter Pioneer, we're going to have to turn to it anyway. Because in spite of every good cause we have to throw it out, it remains the only document to tell us about the life of George Wellington Streeter. We'll just try to take it with a full shaker of salt. Here goes. George Streeter was born near Flint, Michigan in 1837. So far, so good? His father, William Streeter, farmed, hunted, and built bridges there in the warm months, all right, and practiced maritime law to get through the winter... Yeah, I know, but that's what it says. The young George hunted wild game, up to and including black bear, and helped collect, skim, thicken, crystallize, and mold maple syrup into sugar cakes. The book goes on at great length about the sugar maples, so it's safe to say that either Streeter or Ballard really did have some strong memories of this. When he was 18, he started cutting timber for a nearby industrialist. According to his biography, within a year, Streeter owned the lumber mill himself, sold it off, bought another, and employed 50 men beneath him. The book does not go into detail of how this was accomplished, but what broad strokes are there are pages straight out of Paul Bunyan or John Henry. From there, he becomes a shipwright. By what means, he doesn't say, but given that he does appear to have built the Rutan, there's almost certainly some truth to this one. It's around this time, before 1860, that he married his first wife, whom the book goes bitterly out of its way not to name. But other records know her as Minnie. In June 1860, he transferred his shipbuilding skills to overland invention, building a covered wagon and traveling west all the way to the Rio Grande and back again looking for a good mining claim and having fantastical, improbable adventures all the way. He returned to Michigan in August of 1861 and found himself drafted into the Union Army at approximately the same time he learned the war was on. Naturally, he quickly made himself a war hero several times over and made several somber, eloquent speeches about the trials and ravages of man's inhumanity towards man. After the war, he got a job working for what the book calls a natural museum and menagerie, which I'm pretty certain was actually a Michigan speakeasy with a monkey bartender, 
but whatever. This gave him the idea to start a traveling animal show and tour around with Minnie. They and a small crew would toil by wagon over muddy trails from village to hamlet where the small town people of Indiana, Michigan, and Illinois would pay for the rare chance to see near-mythical beasts like raccoons and rabbits and one rooster. To spice up the lineup, Streeter purchased a 1,500-pound hog, painted it white, and billed it as a trunkless elephant. Shockingly, the George S. Wellington shows and their white miniature trunkless elephant were a big success, and Streeter quickly expanded the roster with a ventriloquist, a Punch and Judy show, and a number of other acts, the precise workings of which I can't ascertain, aside from that they were most definitely unspeakably offensive. After a year, the show was doomed by an unusually wet spring, which impeded both their travel and their audiences, and eventually Streeter sold most of his acts and equipment to Barnum & Bailey competitor Adam Forpaw, inventor of the circus train, and returned to Michigan to work in lumber again. He made good money, built a steamboat, sold it, and headed to St. Louis, where he built a riverboat in anticipation of a new career as a captain. He named the boat the Mini E. Streeter after his wife, a detail that, once again, quite conspicuously, doesn't make the biography. Probably because not long after he finished the boat, Minnie took all his money and ran off to make an unsuccessful stint as a vaudeville performer. Streeter, it seems, removed her name not just from the boat, but from his life entirely. Which, why don't we just foreshadow this right now, eventually proved to be a mistake. Streeter, now Captain Streeter, spent the next few years hauling cargo on the Mississippi and Ohio rivers, and then moved to the small town of Bedford, Iowa, where, according to his biography, he ran a hotel, stables, and omnibus. Unfortunately, according to his biography, there was another hotel, stables, and omnibus in Bedford already, and the proprietor didn't take kindly to the competition. According to his biography, Streeter's time in Bedford was marked by a string of attacks and assassination attempts undertaken by hired goons in the employ of his rival, all of which he managed to overcome with superhuman daring do. I'm emphasizing the according to his biography part here, not just because of how ridiculous his stories of wrestling one after another 300-pound knife-wielding toughs into submission on the street sounds, but also because, as far as I've been able to figure, George Streeter never owned a hotel or stable or omnibus in Bedford, Iowa. In fact, as near as I can tell, he worked for the very man his biography calls his bitter rival as a lowly bus driver. One way or the other, by the mid-1870s, he'd moved on from Bedford to Chicago, where he took again to show business, either buying a stake in or simply working for a series of novelty museums and vaudeville theaters. He met and married, mm, actually, let's put an asterisk by married for later, his second wife, oh, and one there too, an Irish immigrant named Maria Mulholland, who all sources agree was as fiery, tough-nosed, and hard-drinking as Streeter himself. The wedding, ooh, sorry, one more asterisk, took place in a local bar in 1885. Now joined together by law, yeah, okay, last one, I promise, they began planning out a new life together. One that would involve a new steamship, which they planned to call the Roatan, except their spelling failed them. So, in the summer of 1886, they christened the 35-ton Rutan. 
with hopes in their hearts and a cunning get-rich-quick scheme in their minds. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp is here for you. They'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment, all in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help, it's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime, and you'll receive timely, thoughtful responses. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, too, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp is available worldwide, with a broad range of expertise which may not be available locally, like relationships, trauma, grief, or stress. And anything you share is confidential. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recording additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. Having your voice be heard is more important now than ever. And that's why, even though the election is done, the fight for voting rights marches on. Your voice matters, my voice matters, and every eligible voter has a right to make their voice matter. Voting should be free, fair, and safe. I cast my vote last month, and I hope you did too. More than 160 million projected voters cast their ballot this year, shattering records. We want to know what motivated you to participate in an election that will help us deliver a democracy where we can all thrive. We've heard from first-time voters, those who stood in line for hours, and those who were moved to tears knowing how important their vote was. If you or someone you know had trouble voting, or if there's any other experience you'd like to share, let your story be heard now. Visit andstillivote.org slash yourstorymatters. That's your hyphen story hyphen matters to join the fight for voting rights today. Paid for by the Leadership Conference Education Fund. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. 
let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. The christening of the Rutan is where this story really, finally gets started. And it's also where it gets even more contested. For instance, did Streeter build the boat or buy it old and fix it up? Depends on who you ask. What was it built or else refurbished for? According to Streeter's biography, written by his lawyer, remember, he had a friend from his riverboat days named Captain Bowen, who was from Honduras. Captain Bowen requested Streeter build a riverboat and pilot it down to his home country, where the Honduran government, he said, was making special incentives to try to fill holes in their supply chains. They needed more boats and captains to move precious food and cargo through the country, and were willing to pay special for it. According to virtually everyone else, George and Maria built the Rutan for a slightly different purpose. Sure, they wanted to take it to Honduras to run guns, not food and cargo. Why the boat failed to reach Honduras also depends on whom you trust. Streeter said that he'd decided to spend a summer testing the boat out on Lake Michigan before making the run to Central America, and that in the meantime, he set the Rutan up for passenger service between Chicago and Milwaukee. His critics and enemies say that he simply didn't have the funding or logistics to make the journey. This is an important distinction because it goes to the story of how the Rutan got stuck on the sandbar 400 feet off the north shore of Chicago, kick-starting the 40-year land war that followed. Man, we're back here finally, huh? All right, let's try it. In Captain Streeter Pioneer, Ballard, writing as Streeter, describes the fateful events of July 10th, 1886, like this. On the 10th of July, 1886, I took a private party to Milwaukee, and during the trip, the lake became exceedingly rough and stormy. In fact, so much so that the party decided not to risk the return trip, and we endeavored to return to Chicago alone. By the time we reached Racine, we encountered a terrific storm, which did not abate its fury for many hours, and by that time, the Rutan was a badly damaged wreck lying on a sandbar off Chicago Harbor behind the government breakwater on the North Shore. It was about 10 o'clock at night when we drifted near the breakwater, and just at this juncture the engine broke and became useless. We were then at the mercy of the wind and waves, helplessly drifting about. Fortunately, or unfortunately, just as you may choose to judge by subsequent events, the wind drove us behind the breakwater, narrowly missing a collision with the pier. Just as soon as we were clear of this danger, I cast anchor overboard, hoping to prevent the steamer from running aground on the beach. But the sea was so strong that it not only broke the boat in tremendous waves, but it also dragged the anchor across the bottom of the lake, which at that point was not very deep. The boat finally stranded in a shallow body of water when 451 feet from the shore. This was at 3 o'clock in the morning on the following day and we had gone through terrible experiences since drifting behind the breakwater shortly after 10 o'clock on the night before. During this interval, the waves dashed over the boats hundreds of times with terrific force. I was the only man on deck. My wife and the crew were driven to the berths for safety, 
and I tied a strong rope about my waist and resolved to witness from the decks whatever happened. Twice I was swept overboard by tremendous waves, but managed to climb back to deck overhand after the wave had receded and I could approach the boat in safety. The waves soon dashed in every door of the cabins and swept through the boat from end to end and from side to side. The steamer was flooded. Finally, the boat was pounded so hard on the sandy bottom of the lake that the bottom of the boat was rent and the seams of the hull opened up. After this, it soon filled with water and sand and sank to the bottom, which, fortunately, was close at hand, for the hull was about 12 inches above the water line after the sea had subsided, and the bulwarks were about two feet above. Investigation proved that it would be impossible to pull the boat off this sandy bar with a tug, and that she was too badly damaged in her frame and bottom to float. I decided that this location was to be my home, and I have never revoked that decision from that day to this. It's a dramatic story, full of the bluster and boister we're at this point used to hearing from Streeter and his lawyer-cum-biographer. So, you might be tempted to write it off and listen to whoever there was out there to contradict him. But let me help stifle that instinct at least a bit, because unlike so many of Captain Streeter's tall tales, this one, the most important one, is corroborated. No less a source than the New York Times published an account of the beaching of the Rutan that mirrors Streeter's telling, at least in the broad strokes, as do several books written within the captain's lifetime. It isn't until 1902, 16 years after the Rutan, by whatever means, ended up on the sandbar, that people began to disagree with the story on record. By then, there'd been a good number of lawsuits and trials over the disputed land. Like, I don't know how many, half a dozen, a dozen, more, a lot, that's for sure. From what I can tell, nobody contradicted the origin of Streeter's boat in all that time, aside from N.K. Fairbank, who we'll get right back to. This is important, because how and where and why the Rutan ended up in the sandy shallows off Michigan Avenue was critical to Streeter's claim on the land. So, let's take a second and explore the legal arguments in play. As said before, sometime after 1886 and before 1892, said Sandy Shallows off Michigan Avenue, turned into 186 acres of lakefront property. We'll come back to how that transformation occurred, because, <laughs> you guessed it, the answer is disputed. But before that, let's explain the arguments for ownership. A group of Chicago industrialists, including N.K. Fairbank, Potter Palmer, and the Peabodies, along with the city of Chicago and state of Illinois and various government departments of them, all said that the new-made land belonged to them. This, they argued, was because of a common law system known as riparian rights. The general concept goes like this. Nobody can own a lake itself, but they can, under some circumstances, own the land under the lake. If the water is sufficiently deep and wide to be navigable by boat, then it can't be owned. It's got to be held in common trust by the people. But a non-navigable stretch of water, like, say, a 186-acre shallow sandbar that beaches any boat thrown onto it, can be owned and automatically belongs to whomever owns the land that abuts it. In 1886, the stretch of lakeshore adjoining the 186-acre sandbar was owned by some of the richest and most powerful people in the country. Potter Palmer had a mansion there, and so did N.K. Fairbank and the Peabodies, and etc. So they argued, since the sandbar should, by common law, have belonged to them 
when it was still underwater, it was only logical that that same land should continue to belong to them once the waters were removed. Got it? Pretty simple, pretty sound, right? But here is Captain George Winchester Streeter's counterargument, and if you're expecting a sober, thorough, well-reasoned legal claim, then... Oh, you're not? Well, no, no, that's too bad, because that's exactly what it was. First of all, Streeter said that the riparian claims on the made land were bunk. The sandbar shifted drastically from season to season and year to year, which meant that the amount and boundaries of navigable water also drastically shifted from season to season and year to year. Ergo, the supposed riparian property was, in the most charitable reading, fluid. More important was the question of how the lake became the land. Streeter argued that the whole plot in question only even existed because of him. When the rutan washed upon the sandbar, it served as a sort of artificial reef, and over the course of time, the sands accreted around it, rising up until they breached the surface. Which sounds somewhat plausible, sure, but there's no way one boat could create 186 acres of land, right? No, but that's not all. In the 1880s, Chicago was still rebuilding from the Great Chicago Fire. Scores of builders and contractors were clearing rubble or building fresh all around the city, including right along the then lakeshore around Michigan Avenue. Captain Streeter struck deals with them to dump their debris around his stranded houseboat. And according to his argument, that flotsam, along with the sand accretion, was primarily responsible for reclaiming the plot. Now, Fairbank et al. denied this emphatically and entirely. They said it was their efforts, along with the Lincoln Park Board of Directors and the Fitzsimmons and Connell Dredge and Dock Company that had done the reclaiming. I think they were probably lying. Not entirely. Don't get me wrong, there was definitely work done by all of the above in drying out the lakefront, particularly Potter Palmer, who had Lakeshore Drive built high above the water for the express purpose of getting a road all of his own to the aforementioned mansion. But while Streeter definitely didn't get all that land raised, and probably not most of it, his story checks out too well and is repeated by too many to dismiss out of hand. He was, I believe, at least partly responsible. Anyway, it hardly mattered, because all of this is just the appetizer. The main argument Streeter had for his control of the new lots was far more clever than any of that. He went back to 1821, when Lewis Cass and Solomon Sibley, on behalf of the U.S. government, made a treaty with the Ottawa, Chippewa, and Potawatomi nations for the lands that now included northeastern Illinois and the city of Chicago. They employed John Walls to survey the area so as to draw up the boundaries of the deal. Walls' survey was extremely, commendably thorough. In the survey, the land now owned by Fairbank, Palmer, etc. was given to Robert Kinsey, a fur trader. But because Walls was so meticulous, the eastern boundary of Kinsey's plot was not given as the shore of Lake Michigan. Rather, Walls had drawn out the property line specifically along the exact lines at which the land met the lake right then, in 1821. In the pursuing decades, as the shoreline changed, Kinsey several times went to court to express his own riparian water rights. In each and every case, the court decided he had none. The water and land east of the 1821 boundaries didn't belong to him, or to the city of Chicago, or to the state of Illinois. 
It was independent, federally controlled, interstate waters, Streeter argued. And since it was unclaimed, and since he had landed upon it and settled into life there, and since he was a Civil War veteran, he had homesteading rights to the whole shebang, which he called the United States District of Lake Michigan, separate and sovereign from the city and the state. It is a pretty brilliant case, frankly, enough to almost make you wonder if the grandiloquent version of Streeter, only otherwise seen in Ballard's biography, was real after all. For the first few years, it doesn't seem like anybody took much notice of Captain and Mrs. Streeter living aboard their wrecked steamboat in the receding shallow waters. But when N.K. Fairbank made his first attempt to have them removed in 1890, they introduced themselves to the media. Streeter told the Tribune, I've been a sailor man for 25 years and my name is G.W. Streeter. George Wellington Streeter. Maria corrected him. But I'm no Englisher. Ha! Or you'd never have married me. By then, Streeter had had the rutan removed and replaced by a larger two-decked barge, which he stranded in the exact same position and set up as a more permanent dwelling. In September, Fairbank filed a writ of forcible detainer against him, and Streeter challenged it, demanding a jury trial. Fairbank argued before the court that he had allowed Streeter, his wife Maria, and his bulldog Spot to stay on the land out of an overlarge sense of comedy. But with the land filling in around the houseboat, he wanted to revoke the agreement and have the squatters removed. Streeter denied that there had ever been any such agreement in the first place. Vast. When they began to fill up the lake, I didn't say nothing until it came they had filled some 400 feet from the old water line. Then the dude said, I had their riparian rights. They ordered me off. I wouldn't go. They asked the health department to fire me, and I fired the health department. Mr. Fairbank, he said he'd burn me down, and I said I'd shoot Mr. Fairbank's whiskers off if he tried it. I would, too. Mr. Fairbank came in his carriage one day, and he was howling mad. I says, says I, Mr. Fairbank, you look here. I am an American citizen, and you can't come no British Lord business me. And moreover, Mr. Fairbank, you can't work no Johnny Bull on me because I was born in Michigan, and your riparian rights is nothing to me, Mr. Fairbank. Our rights is more riper than is. More by token that we was here first. Fairbank won the case, but Streeter refused to recognize the outcome. After all, according to his logic, the city and state courts had no jurisdiction in the matter. He promised to fight in federal courts, to bring in the might of the U.S. Army to defend his claim, and to hold it by force if need be. Even Spot was trained for combat. While holding out in the boathouse, he appealed the decision to the Superior Court, which sided with him and against Fairbank. This is as good a point as any to call the true beginning of the Streeter War. Both sides began bulking up immediately from there, both legally and extra-legally. There were court cases filed and litigated so regularly and so uselessly that most of them don't bear talking about. Fairbank and his fellow millionaires formed a small army of private guards, thugs, and detectives from the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Streeter built defensive structures and armed his houseboat for siege. He also began selling plots of land 
to like-minded weirdos and roughnecks who promised to fill in the ranks of his own force. Together, they built a formal shantytown, which they called the District of Lake Michigan. They built their own courthouse and district legislature. I think, at least. In some versions, these government buildings were just signs saying things like district court hung over the outhouses, which is admittedly hilarious. Clashes between the people of the district and the army of private muscle and public police were frequent. And it's worth saying before we go into any details that all of this was very illegal. And I don't just mean Streeter. The Pinkertons didn't have any legal basis to harass or remove the squatters, whether their claim was legitimate or not. And the police were often used as an extension of the power of the muddied interests of Fairbanks and the rest of them, totally illegitimately. In the biography, Streeter and or Ballard suggest that the main purpose of these battles was to incite the people of the district to fight back and then remove them on the basis of assault, unlawful assembly, rioting, disorderly conduct, malicious trespass, or whatever else they could think up. Judging by the court records, that seems to be exactly right. Over and over again, Pinkertons or Chicago police invade the district only to be chased off, usually with force. Then, charges are filed against the defenders. Usually, those charges fail. For instance, in July of 1888, a force tried to evict Streeter, but were driven off when he fired a shotgun full of birdshot at them. Then, Streeter was charged on assault with a deadly weapon. He was found not guilty on the grounds that birdshot wasn't strong enough to qualify as deadly. It's a curious reasoning, but over and over again, Streeter and his confederates prevailed in these sorts of cases. Maria wasn't prosecuted when she poured a pot of boiling water over a group of cops who were trying to arrest her husband. They arrested him for failing to disperse a riot, but he successfully got off by arguing that since he was the only one charged, it would have been impossible for him to disperse a crowd made up of only himself. Frankly, it looks to me like judges were trying to find any which way they could to avoid litigating between the two legally dubious sides. But that isn't to say it was all stalemates. The suits and countersuits between Streeter and Fairbank over the legitimacy of their claims usually ended in favor of the latter. Maybe that was because Fairbank had better attorneys, or because he was a prominent and powerful citizen where Streeter was just a gadfly. But Cap didn't do himself a lot of favors. On several occasions throughout the 1880s and 90s, he offered evidence of ownership, deeds, patents, and writs, which turned out to be rather obvious forgeries. Most notably, in August 1895, he produced a preemption certificate which stated that he was entitled to the land in question. Quote, According to the Act of Congress of the 4th of April, 1820, entitled An Act Making Further Provision for the Sale of Public Lands for Tracts East of and Adjoining the South Half of Rational Sect 3 and the North Half of Rational Sect 10, East, and Adjoining Township 39, North of Range 14, East of 3rd PM, containing 186 acres, more or less, according to the official plat of the survey of said lands returned to the General Land Office by the Surveyor General, which said tract has been purchased by said George W. Streeter and Peter T. Johnston. That's very officious and powerful sounding, right? More so when you see that the certificate was signed by no less an authority than President Grover Cleveland. Less impressively, it was also signed by his Secretary of the Interior, Hoke Smith, who, it was quickly noticed by the court, somehow managed to misspell his own first name. Streeter and three of his compatriots were arrested for forgery, 
but the court declined to rule one way or the other in the matter of whether the claim to the land generally was legit. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. George Wellington Streeter was a hell of a character. He was well-known for dressing himself as a hobo gent with an old tall top hat he never removed, his beady darting eyes behind his bent spectacles, his bulldog, Spot, that accompanied him as constantly as the top hat, and about whom he said, If Spot ever fastens his teeth in the leg of the state of Illinois, the state of Illinois will limp forever afterward. And all of these funny little details and quotes gel so well with the outrageous tall tales he told about his life and works. It all makes for a really great story, but it also might have a way of biasing us. It's only natural to assume that since Streeter was so wholly unreliable that his enemies must have been less so. These were men of high character, pillars of the community, captains of industry. They had city, state, and federal officials on their side, and the police to preserve their order, after all. But let's be straight about it. Fairbank and his millionaires were every bit as skeevy as Streeter and his hobos. Anybody who's read much about the Wild West or about the labor movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries will tell you that the Pinkertons were beyond morally bankrupt. They acted with near-legal impunity, and their good works, like protecting President Lincoln's funeral train and apprehending members of the Jesse James gang, were quickly assumed by the many, many occasions upon which they shot and killed striking workers and sometimes their families. In 1893, a federal law titled the Anti-Pinkerton Act was passed to stop the federal government from hiring them. Sure, the local governments and courts often sided with the millionaires, but that deck was pretty well stacked too, as you might imagine. Hell, the neighborhood was overseen by Alderman Henry Onery, a rich land developer himself, and the father-in-law of Potter Palmer. Their side was no more above committing fraud than Streeter's. In several trials, they brought out witnesses who claimed that Streeter had planned on extorting them by squatting on the land from the very start. This might have been true, but the witnesses themselves were almost definitely perjurers. One of them was General Fitzsimmons himself, one of the developers, who, 25 years after the Rutan beached, came forward to say Streeter had tried to involve him in his plot. Don't you believe it, folks? It's also worth noting that while the millionaires, as Streeter's called them, frequently won decisions against the captain, they were also busy losing their own claims on the land against the state of Illinois. Fairbank and Palmer and the rest of them had formed a sort of cabal, and its primary interest in removing Streeter was because they were busy trying to prove their ownership of the land. And time and again, 
the courts said their riparian arguments didn't hold water. And that is dangerously close to being a pun. You might notice a bit of a contradiction then. How did these rich men manage to get decisions against Streeter on land that they themselves could not credibly claim to own? My guess would be corruption. Streeter was at best deluded, and at worst an unapologetic fraud. But even if every last scrap of his claim on the district was bullshit, that doesn't change the fact that all of these powerful forces colluded in dangerous ways to try to illegally eject or harm him and the other residents. Take, for best example, the events of May 8th, 1899. That's 13 years into the Streeter War. A few dozen people were living in the district at that time, and they built a large number of permanent dwellings and community buildings. That morning, the Chicago police came and rounded up Streeter and his residents. While they were disposed at the courthouse, in came the Pinkertons and burnt every last house down to the ground, while CPD literally looked the other way, forming a human barricade around the district to prevent anyone from stopping the arson. When Streeter and his people finally returned, they found every last worldly possession they had destroyed, aside from Maria's piano, which somehow survived. For the next year, none of them could return to the district. The Pinkertons stood guard and repelled Streeter and his men time and time again. The district had held elections in absentia, and Streeter had been named to a lower office, seemingly to defuse liability a bit. He held up in a hotel, where he continued to petition various arms of government and sold more plots of unavailable land to supporters. William H. Niles was appointed the military governor of the territory. The events of May 26, 1900 were his plan. It was a huge operation. 40 or 50 men, armed to the teeth, took off by boat from East Chicago, Indiana, in the dead of night, and landed on the claim under cover of darkness. Once there, they dug trenches, built battlements, and erected war tents, preparing for another siege, bigger than any that had come before. Governor Niles's district army claimed they had cannons and Gatling guns at their disposal, though it's more likely that this was just a bluff. They released a Declaration of Independence from the state of Illinois, the county of Cook, and the city of Chicago, and threatened force against any encroachment short of the United States military. Early in the morning, a small group of police headed by Captain Barney Bear failed to heed the warning, and a police horse was shot and killed. In response, 600 officers with armed patrol wagons and two tugboats armed with three-inch guns were deployed against the district. The Streeter War was going hot. There was some exchange of fire, but for the most part, the next few hours were made of tense silence. Police ordered the men to surrender, and the men refused. The big guns of the boats were trained on the rabble, and the blue coats formed up to begin in advance. It looked like it would be a terribly bloody affair, and residents from all around the city migrated to the lakefront to see whether it would be a battle or a massacre. Instead, one lone Lincoln Park policeman named William L. Hayes stepped forward, marched into the district, and yelled out, Say, fellers, cut it out. And so they did. The district army surrendered and were taken into the Chicago Avenue police station. Streeter himself was quickly released, as it was determined he hadn't been a part of the plan, and the rest of the army were let go after a week-long hearing ended in mistrial. Most importantly, nobody got hurt. Maybe. 
From 1886 until 1918, there were dozens of battles in the district, and yet the reports of serious injuries are thin. One 14-year-old boy was accidentally peppered with birdshot in the face but recovered. Lots of people were beaten on all sides of the conflict. But, at least officially, the Streeter War had only one fatality, John Kirk. And his death changed everything. John Kirk was employed by one or another of the consortium Streeter called the Millionaires, but who were referred to in the courts and papers as the St. Clair Street Owners. They claimed that he was hired as a security guard for a shack abutting the district. Streeter said he was a hired goon, paid to beat the people of the district off their land, or maybe even to assassinate Streeter himself. All things being equal, I lean towards Streeter's take. On the night of February 11th, 1902, gunfire broke out in the district. Judging by all the available testimony, it more likely began with the Pinkertons, though for what purpose, who can say? Three or four of the district crew answered, and both sides dug in. Neither group seems to have been trying to do any real damage. They were each engaging in suppressing fire, making a show of it. But somehow, one of the Pinkertons, John Kirk, took a bullet to the head. Police came in and arrested people on both sides of the firefight. For good measure, they also arrested Captain George Wellington Streeter. Literally no one at the scene, on either side, alleged that he'd been part of the shooting. Early accounts agreed that he was in the second story of the boathouse at the time, having dinner with Maria. When police came to apprehend him, he was absentmindedly smoking a cigar and asked them what they wanted. They didn't give an answer, but brought him in without cause. Then he was charged with murder. I'm not saying Streeter wasn't a con, or a huckster, or a total jerk. Hell, during the trial, he gave an impromptu press conference in the courthouse elevator, during which he affixed the blame for Kirk's death on the victim himself. Kirk's widow was there in the elevator with him and took out an umbrella, beat him over the head with it. And like, good for her. I'm not even saying he wasn't a killer. He very well may have been. And if he wasn't, that was more to do with circumstances than constitution. But there is no reason to believe that he was responsible for John Kirk's death. None. In the first trial, he was acquitted. So the state brought up lesser charges, manslaughter, and tried him again. He was found guilty on December 3, 1902, and sentenced to life behind bars. After nine months in prison, his conviction was overturned on a technicality, and then Governor Altgeld issued a pardon. While he had been imprisoned, Maria died, right there on the made land she'd spent the last 18 years defending. Upon his release, Streeter returned straight away to the spot of her deathbed and built a new house, out of brick this time. It wasn't over yet. In 1906, at age 69, he married for a third time. Ooh, no, let's get that asterisk back out. Married. Got it? Good. Her name was Alma Lockwood of Wakarusa, Indiana. But Chicago just called her Ma. For the next decade, Ma and Cap defended their territory as fiercely as it had ever been. At one point, Ma attacked a group of Pinkertons with a butcher's knife. Captain Streeter had a definite type. On the whole, though, the battle went quiet. Captain Streeter had become something of a beloved local celebrity, and the actions taken against him by the millionaires in the last two decades of fighting seemed to hurt their own popularity. So they stifled a bit. 
There were still scuffles and court cases, but the consensus seems to have been that the land wasn't worth the hassle. So, for a while at least, the independent district of Lake Michigan prevailed. There were two factors that finally brought it down. For one, the independent district quickly became known as the vice district. In 1915, the Chicago City Council prohibited the sale of alcohol on Sundays, which was a super bummer. Cap Streeter saw it as an opportunity, though, seeing as his land wasn't, in his view, a part of Chicago. He sold beer seven days a week until the CPD came in and raided his fathered fatherland for the last time. In the course of arresting Streeter, Ma, and most of the inhabitants for illegal alcohol sales and related matters, the police burnt down the district once again. Streeter reportedly commented, This year is an outrage. It's worse than the Kaiser ever did. I'll have the law on him. Months later, the courts finally ruled decisively against his claim to the property. Because he was the most Chicago-y Chicagoan to ever Chicago, he spent his final years selling hot dogs at Navy Pier. I know that probably doesn't land for most of you, but the locals are with me. As soon as he was kicked out, the building began. Because the other factor in the fall of the district is that construction had begun on the Michigan Avenue Bridge. There would soon be a direct artery from the heart of the loop straight up into the soggy, landfill-floated land Streeter had spent the last 30 years defending. When the bridge opened in 1920, that 186 acres transformed into some of the most valuable real estate in the United States virtually overnight. Captain Streeter didn't get to see it. He died of pneumonia on a riverboat he shared with Ma for the last handful of years in Calumet Harbor on January 22, 1921. Mayor Big Bill Thompson, the third or fourth worst mayor in Chicago history, personally attended his funeral. He was buried at Graceland Cemetery, along with the Palmers, the Fairbanks, the Honores, and the Peabodies. Although his grave is admittedly harder to find. Ma, firecracker that she was, didn't give up on his legacy. In May of 1924, she filed a suit for $100 million against the Chicago Title and Trust Company, the Fairbank Estate, the Palmers, the Honores, the Newberries, the Peabodies, and roughly 1,500 others who she alleged were violating her rights to her late husband's property. Oh, crap. There's the asterisk again. See, it turns out that Cap never formally divorced his first wife, Minnie, when she ran off to the vaudeville circuit. So, neither the deceased Maria nor the still-quite-living Ma had been legally married to him. Attorneys for the defense determined her lack of standing, and the suit was dismissed. Today, the independent district of Lake Michigan is no more. In its place are 186 acres of high-rises, home to some of Chicago's richest people, most expensive stores, trendiest restaurants, and elite businesses. It stretches from the Chicago River on the south to Lakeshore Drive in the north. In between, there are streets, courts, and slips named for prominent Chicagoans. Like John Kinsey, whose 1821 land claim gave the captain his best argument. Several of his hated millionaires have parts named for them, too. The Newberry Library, where I did a lot of my research back in the before times. The Ogden Slip. And Fairbank Court, which runs almost the whole length of the neighborhood. But the neighborhood itself? Everybody knows it, whether they know why or not. 
as Streeterville. Music for today's episode by Lee Rosevere, Blue Dot Sessions, Kevin McLeod, Ben Sound, The Joy Drops, and Heftone Banjo Orchestra. Voice talent from Jody Kingsley, H.B. Ward. Special thanks go out to Joey Shop, Louis Claus, Brandon Wagner, Azerbod Thinleyvale, William Meadows, and each and every other person who has supported this show over this incredibly harrowing year, whether by contributing to the Patreon, buying our t-shirts, rating and reviewing, sharing the word with friends, or just listening. This is the last episode of the interminable Sartrean year we call 2020. Thank you for making the constant a part of your version of this purgatorial crucible. I hope I helped, I don't know, dull the monotony or anxiety and dread for a few hours. Having this show to make and having you out there listening to it has, no exaggeration, gotten me through this. So thank you once more. And a thanks to everybody at Hub and Spoke Audio Collective for their support and friendship. If you haven't, you should check out all of their wonderful programs. Go to hubspokeaudio.org to browse the catalog. The Briny, Culture Hustlers, Iconography, The Lonely Palette, Ministry of Ideas, Open Source, Rumble Strip, Soonish, Subtitle. Each one represents some of the best audio in their respective lanes, and I'm proud to be a part of them. At the corner of Grand Avenue and McClurg Court, there stands a bronze statue of a spindly, beady-eyed, mustachioed hobo, adorned in a tall top hat and carrying a little dog named Spot. And under him there is a plaque, which reads, Captain George Cap Wellington Streeter, the eccentric resident who gave Streeterville its name. <laughs> Until next time, from the only city that would both cast him in bronze and so comically understate why, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant.